Imagine that a catastrophic medical emergency occurs in a distant suburb of a large city. What goes into ensuring that a safe and effective response is initiated? Witnesses on the scene must contact first responders, and the roads from the city to the suburbs must be intact to permit a timely response. If any or all of these parts are missing, those who suffer that emergency will not get the care they need, with worsened morbidity or fatality. In diabetic foot infections, the foot is the distant suburb, far removed from the main vascular highways near the heart. The pain response is the initial call to first responders. The responders are your body's immune system and hemostatic mechanisms. The deteriorating condition is the progression from superficial wound to cellulitis to osteomyelitis. Today, our patient has a diabetic foot infection and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Crisis in the Suburbs, an Approach to Diabetic Foot Infection. Now, time for a minute physiology. Generally, our bodies have multiple defenses in place to help prevent injury and subsequent infection when we suffer a traumatic wound. Our nervous system alerts us to potentially damaging stimuli by transmitting pain signals. Damaged tissue promotes a hemostatic response, and inflammatory mediators and chemokines help mount humoral and cell-mediated responses. These responses become increasingly blunted in the setting of chronic hyperglycemia. Diabetic neuropathy represents the final common pathway of multiple hyperglycemic phenomena. This produces a distal symmetric polyneuropathy that leads to an ultimate blunting of sensation to the feet, predisposing those who suffer from this disorder to tissue damage. Autonomic neuropathy may further predispose patients to dry, cracked feet, impairing the sweat and skin barriers to infection. Motor neuropathy can lead to alterations in weight distribution, such as charcoal joints, ultimately leading to stress-induced foot injury as well. The above neurologic phenomena are coupled with poor wound healing associated with microvascular and macrovascular complications of diabetes. Chronic hyperglycemia leads to direct glucose-mediated endothelial damage, oxidative stress, and the production of sorbitol and advanced glycation end products. Ultimately, this culminates in altered blood flow and changes in endothelial permeability, resulting in poor local circulation, limited phagocytic activity at the site of the wound, and poor antibiotic delivery to the focus of a developing infection. This can be worsened by macrovascular complications of diabetes, specifically peripheral vascular disease, which leads to further circulatory dysfunction in the form of the inclusion of larger arteries. Diabetic infections represent a spectrum of infection, ranging from simple cellulitis to osteomyelitis. They often begin with the former, gradually deteriorating as they are left untreated. The most common infectious agents are skin flora, specifically group A streptococcal and staphylococcal infections. If deeper infections are found, they may be associated with gas-producing gram-negative bacilli, though gas gangrene itself is not commonly associated with diabetic foot infections. Under specific circumstances, other organisms may be implicated, such as pastorella in the setting of an animal bite.
All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. As with any infection, the first component of the exam is to assess for hemodynamic stability. Ensure that the patient is alert enough to protect his or her airway and assess for hypoxia or tachypnea. Check for hemodynamic indicators of infection, including fever, hypotension, and tachycardia. Diabetic foot infections are exactly as they sound. They are infections of the feet and patients with diabetes. As such, each of these elements is essential in the approach to diagnosis and management of the infection. When taking a history, it is important to assess the nature of the patient's diabetes. Understand how well controlled their sugars have been and inquire about a most recent HbA1c if possible. Discuss known microvascular and macrovascular diabetic complications in order to ascertain the patient's risk for developing diabetic wounds. Review the patient's history for any previous diabetic wounds, as well as previous treatments, including debridement and prior antibiotic use. Consider a patient's risk of developing an infection from more difficult-to-treat organisms, such as Pseudomonas, MRSA, and ESBL-producing gram-negative bacilli. Discuss the progression of the presenting wound, including its cause if known, as well as any changes that have been noted over time, such as growth, pain, worsening erythema, or purulence. Be sure to screen for any symptoms of ongoing infection, including fevers, night sweats, chills, or rigors. Ulcerations present for greater than 30 days, a history of recurrent foot ulcers, traumatic wounds, peripheral vascular disease in the affected leg, prior amputations, loss of sensation, history of renal insufficiency, and regularly walking barefoot are all associated with a higher likelihood of infection. Physical examination should begin with vitals, with a focus on the signs of infection we mentioned before, including fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, or hypotension. Following this, the wound should be inspected with attention paid to its size and location. Broadly speaking, clinical signs of a more superficial soft tissue infection are based on classic signs of inflammation, which include erythema, swelling, warmth, and tenderness, or the presence of purulent exudate. If at least two of these are positive, consider treating for a soft tissue infection. Other secondary signs of infection may include non-purulent secretions, discolored granulation tissue, or foul odor. These alone are not sufficient for diagnosing a diabetic foot infection and should be interpreted in the appropriate clinical context. You should suspect osteomyelitis when there is strong suspicion on exam of deeper infection. Ulcerations that are larger than 2 cm in diameter have been shown to be associated with deeper infections. If an open ulceration is present, it should be assessed as to whether the underlying bone is visible. If not, the wounds should be probed, as wounds that probe to bone are virtually diagnostic of osteomyelitis. All patients with diabetic foot infections should also have a full cardiac, respiratory, abdominal exam, as well as peripheral vascular exam to examine for other complications of diabetes. In 2012, the IDSA released working guidelines surrounding the severity of infection, classifying infections as mild, moderate, and severe. This grading scale has demonstrated predictive value with regards to risk of amputation and may help guide empiric antibiotic selection, which we'll cover in more detail shortly. 
Now, on to our workup. Diabetic foot infections develop as a complication of chronic, poorly controlled diabetes. If not assessed recently, all patients presenting with a diabetic foot infection should have a repeat hemoglobin A1c or fasting glucose. Inpatients should have their glucose levels monitored. When working up a suspected skin and soft tissue infection, there is no single lab test that will be diagnostic, and a comprehensive physical exam with associated lab results should provide a clinical gestalt. You will want to order a CBC with differential to check for leukocytosis, which may suggest an infection. If the diagnosis is unclear, a C-reactive protein will often be elevated in an ongoing diabetic cellulitis. Collections such as bullae or abscesses can be aspirated and cultured, which can shed light on the offending organism and potentially its source. Workup of a suspected diabetic osteomyelitis will involve a similar workup to cellulitis. A wound generally should be empirically treated as osteomyelitis if it probes directly to bone or if the bone is immediately visible through the wound. Otherwise, imaging may be used to diagnose ongoing osteomyelitis. X-ray is a common modality that is used in the initial value of a wound for potential osteomyelitis. The sensitivity of X-ray is limited, as it may take up to two to three weeks for radiographic changes to manifest. However, imaging results such as periosteal thickening and lytic lesions more commonly, and osteopenia, loss of trabecular architecture, and new bone apposition less commonly are indicative of osteomyelitis. If initial evaluation with X-ray is negative... MRI is highly sensitive and specific for osteomyelitis, with lesions appearing hypo-intense on T1 and hyper-intense on T2-weighted imaging. In patients unable to undergo MRI, alternative diagnostic imaging modalities include a bone scan or a white blood cell scan. In patients with poor vascular supply, the sensitivity of bone scan will be reduced. In leukocytopenic patients, the utility of white blood cell scan is limited. With a routine presentation of diabetic osteomyelitis, a convincing history and physical corroborated with laboratory imaging findings would be sufficient to initiate treatment. Complex situations might require tissue biopsy and culture. These can include failure of initial therapy, a high-risk lesion for amputation, equivocal findings on imaging, or the presence of hardware that would require replacement. On to our management. Management should begin with the assessment of a patient's ABCs. Unstable patients should be treated as they would in sepsis. These patients should be hospitalized with consideration for urgent surgery and intravenous antibiotics. Broadly, the treatment of a diabetic foot infection, as with any infection, can be broken down into three parts. First, risk factor. In this case, glycemic control. Second, source control. And third, antimicrobial therapy and mitigation. Severe diabetic foot infections are a complication of chronic uncontrolled diabetes. Therefore, any patient presenting with a diabetic foot infection should have his or her diabetic medication and or adherence reassessed. They should be encouraged to regularly follow up with their family physician and counsel regarding proper wound care and prevention techniques, including foot care and proper footwear. Source control involves ensuring that the wound doesn't expand. Patients should be encouraged to keep their wounds elevated. Necrotic tissue should be debrided. Consider a wound care consultation as well as a surgical consultation in the cases of large wounds that will require significant debridement. In cases of severe, deep tissue infections or significant osteomyelitis, surgical consultation for potential amputation should be considered. If a wound is thought to be infected, empiric antimicrobial therapy should be initiated. 
Cases of mild infection, such as superficial cellulitis, may be treated with an oral antibiotic regimen targeted towards skin flora for a duration of 7 to 10 days. This may include agents such as cephalexin, cloxacillin, or clindamycin. In moderate infections, such as deep ulcers extending to the fascia, skin flora, anaerobes, and aerobic gram-negative bacteria should be targeted. Common regimens for moderate infections include intravenous cefazin or cloxacillin with the addition of anaerobic coverage with agents such as metronidazole. In patients known to be MRSA colonized or in whom MRSA has been isolated from the wound, a gram-positive agent with MRSA coverage such as vancomycin should be selected. In patients with risk factors for pseudomonal infection, such as those with significant water exposure to the wound, anti-pseudomonal antibiotics such as ciprofloxacin or piperacillin tazobactam should be considered. In severe, limb-threatening infections, empiric broad-spectrum therapy with activity against common skin flora, MRSA, anaerobes, and aerobic gram-negative pathogens should be initiated. This may consist of piperacillin tazobactam, carbapenem, or metronidazole plus a broad-spectrum cephalosporin or fluoroquinolone, combined with vancomycin, linezolid, or daptomycin for MRSA coverage. In these more complicated cases, a four to six week regimen should be initiated and an infectious disease specialist should be consulted. If a tissue specimen was submitted, antimicrobial therapy should be subsequently adjusted to the identified organism. All right, time for a medicine minute. Did you know that merely having diabetes with a diabetic wound doubles one's likelihood of mortality in the next 10 years compared to diabetes alone? That's why, with these patients, it is crucial to not only treat their wound, but to also ensure that they engage in preventative therapies and improve their glycemic control. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Crisis in the Suburbs, an Approach to Diabetic Foot Infection. This episode was written by Dr. Eitan Aziza, internal medicine resident, and was reviewed by Dr. Shannon Turvey, infectious disease, and Dr. Selena Dobing, general internist. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brant-Vegas. This podcast was produced and recorded by Allison Lai. Music production by Lakshma Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have associated infographic and resources at our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.